You know, throughout the year, especially during the holidays, now we're past the biggest bulk of those holidays right now, but still yet, we know they're coming up again. That's how years are. But throughout the year, for key holidays, many of us, I believe, can relate to making preparations for guests, for friends, and even family in our homes. Now, here's some things we might do. We might prepare food for a guest, friend, or family. You might prepare a room if they're going to stay the night with you. For instance, my mom lives in Alaska, so if she were going to come down here and stay with us, uh, we would definitely have to make a room available to her and a place for her to sleep. Sometimes my in-laws will come up from Seagrove, and uh, we make a place ready for them um, with uh, the blow-up mattresses and all that sort of stuff. So you might prepare a room, or you may also prepare your home. You might clean it up. You might set things in order. You're not going to leave all the junk piled up on that catch-all there in the corner. You know, you're going to put things away and make it look nice and tidy. Hey, the family's coming over. Let's clean up. You might also prepare by letting the family know. For instance, Johnny, Uncle Ham's coming. You know he's a little crazy. Just just bear with him, okay? Somebody might have that. You know, it was so funny. When I was thinking of a name to put into that little illustration, I chose Ham because uh, just because of Ham from the Bible. But every little name I come up with, I found that we have those people in our church. <laughs> I was like, Johnny, Fred, Joe. I was like, man, well, I can't get any names anymore. We're going with Ham. Nobody names their kid Ham. Or maybe you do. I'm sorry if you did. I, or I'm sorry for that one. Anyway, I'm just kidding around. Um, but we do make preparation. And, uh, and then there's other visitors that come that we're excited to see. I know when, when, when I tell my girls, hey, Nan and Poppy's coming up you would think they're going to just explode right there in the living room and then somehow put themselves back together to explode again when Nan and Poppy show up. That's how excited they get. So there's some people when they come in, we get excited. Maybe it is a grandparent uh, or, or grandparents. Maybe it's parents. Uh, maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a brother or a sister. Maybe it's just a friend that you haven't seen in forever. And they're coming to town and you're just so excited about them showing up. And so in, in every case, it's a little unique. But here's the thing. We all have this in common. All right, watch this. There is one person who will soon arrive for the entire world to see and to meet, and that's Jesus Christ. That's right. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, the Lord Jesus gives us a little bit of insight about this uh, upcoming event we call the second coming. And so before I go any further, let me have you stand to your feet, if you will, and we're going to read verse 38 as we give honor to the Word of God this morning. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And that latter part of that verse is the part that we're going to focus on this morning when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Heavenly Father, I humbly ask you to help me today as I preach your word. May you go through me, Lord, speak through me. May your Holy Spirit be active uh, through the message. May hearts be open to the message. May you help us to see that which we need to see and hear that which we need to hear. And Lord, may you also Help us to respond to that which we need to respond to today. Father, may you have your way in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can go and be seated. 
Now, as far as the second coming, both the Old Testament and the New Testament are filled with promises of the second coming. There are roughly 1,845 references in the Old Testament alone, and a total of 17 Old Testament books that give the second coming great attention. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are 318 references within those 260 chapters of the second coming of Christ. So that averages out to about one out of every 30 verses are mentioning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to that, 23 of the 27 books in our New Testament refer to this great event we call the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was prophesied all the way back in the days of Enoch. That was the, um, Enoch was the seventh generation after Adam. And we know that because of what was mentioned in Jude, where Jude says, And Enoch prophesied of these sayings, Behold, the Lord cometh. So all throughout the Bible, since the dawn and the fall of mankind, God has warned every generation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This event is of great significance because all lawlessness will end when He returns. All sinners will be judged when the Lord returns, and God will restore His creation. Now, in our text today, we're going to take this brief part of of the text here right at the end, when He cometh in the glory of His Father with the holy angels, and recognize that there are three specific details that the Lord has shown us concerning this great event, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one, it's a guaranteed event. The second one, it is a glorified event. And the third one is that it is a gathering event. And I'll explain what I mean by all three of those as we work our way through the message today. The first one, look back at the text with me. And again, we're at the latter part of verse 38, so be sure you pick up in the right spot. He says, when he cometh. Now, you know what's not there? The word if. The word if is not there. He doesn't say if he cometh. He says when he cometh. It's a guaranteed event. The second coming of Christ is as guaranteed as our own death or as, um, as anything else that we would assume. The changing of the seasons, the next year, and all these other things. The, the second coming of Christ is that definite. It is a guaranteed event. In the scriptures, we have witnesses that show up throughout the book, of, throughout our Bibles. And I want to give you a few of those. And I'm going to try not to bog you down with a lot of scripture today. Uh, but I do have some I need you to turn to just in the beginning of the message. If you will, first start with the book of Job this morning. So this event is so guaranteed that we find it not only showing up in the New Testament after the Lord was born in Bethlehem, and then uh, lived out his days in Nazareth and then began his ministry all throughout Israel, went to that Roman cross, died, and then rose again. But we find it even in the Old Testament that the second coming of Christ is talked about in Scripture. So there's the witness of Scripture that we understand guarantees this coming. Job chapter 19, pick up in verse 25 this morning. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now, do you recognize what Job is saying here? The book of Job, chapter 19, Job being right before the book of Psalms, 
Job is the oldest book in your Bible, believe it or not. I know Genesis captures creation, but that was written by Moses, and that would have been sometime after Job. Job would have been closer to uh, the flood age, after the flood, whenever the families began to uh, colonize the world and civilization began after that great tragedy. So here Job, in the book of Job, he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. He's coming back. He's going to be on the earth in those latter days, at that final day. And he says, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, here's the living man Job, who says, once my body dies and it goes in the ground and it decomposes down, you know, that's what worms do to the body, in case you didn't know that. It'll start to decompose the body. He says, after my body has decomposed, don't you worry, my Redeemer liveth, he'll be on the earth in the latter day. And look what he says, in my flesh shall I see God. He was looking towards the resurrection that's to come. And now another passage I want to take you to. Well, let me finish off. Let's go to verse 27 since we got that colon there. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job says, though my body perish, there's the guaranteed witness um, that the Lord will stand upon the earth sometime in the future. Now go with me over to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, that's going to be towards the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah, go past Habakkuk and all those books, and you'll go to uh, Zechariah. Haggai, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. I'm giving you the scriptures up front because I know what happens as you move through the message. Everybody gets tired, and so I'm hoping this gets in you now, and then uh, maybe I can do a backflip up here to get your attention later on, okay? Zechariah 14, 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. The book of Zechariah, being many, many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, written down here, and he says, Behold, the day of the Lord, it, it'll come, it cometh. And look at uh, verse 3. He says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand and that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. The prophet Zechariah was given revelation to understand that the Lord Jesus would one day descend down from heaven in the day of the Lord, as he mentions it here, and he would land upon the Mount of Olives, splitting it in two, and then he would come and take back what's rightfully his. Now here's what's interesting. Hundreds of years after the prophet of Isaiah, the Lord Jesus, in the book of Acts chapter 1, stands on the Mount of Olives and ascends up to heaven. And many witnesses saw him, his apostles, his disciples, and they record those great events. And then as he goes up into heaven and he's taken away in a cloud, there's two standing there who tell the disciples, they say, uh, why stand you here gazing up? The Lord will return in the same manner that He's gone up, meaning that He will return back to the Mount of Olives when He returns in the future. So the idea is that you've got a witness from the Old Testament, the book of uh, Zechariah, for instance, and you have these Old Testament saints that have told us that the second coming is a guaranteed event. Now what about the New Testament saints? 
In the New Testament, we find, and I'm just going to give you these references. You can write them down, except one I'll take you to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. They talk about the, the imminency of the return of Christ. They talk about Him coming as a thief in the night. He's going to come very quickly. And now I want to turn you to Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. I want to take you there. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. So we have the Old Testament saints that bear witness of this second coming. And then we have the New Testament saints that bear witness of this second coming. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, the Apostle John wrote this wonderful book here. It's the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 20, it says, He which testify these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. And then John says, Even so come, Lord Jesus. So there's the witness of the New Testament that the Lord is coming. There's the witness of the Old Testament that the Lord is coming. And then there are passages of Scripture that we find, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 4, and Romans chapter 8, verse 22, and there's probably others as well, but these are just the two I wrote down. And they speak about how not only does man, or has man witnessed of the coming of the Lord, but also creation itself is groaning for the coming of the Lord. This world that we live in was created by God. And it's in a fallen state right now. It's been cursed with death. And all of creation groaneth and travail. For instance, Romans 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So all of creation is even groaning for the coming of the Lord. We see earthquakes. We see floods. We see tornadoes. We see hurricanes. We see uh, great events taking place all around the world. And all of that is this this groaning of creation looking for the coming of the Lord. Now, some of these things you may have heard before, and I want, you, I want to encourage you to still take them to heart. We also have the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a few passages of Scripture here this morning, I want to share with you, John chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 24 are the two places I want you to turn to in your Bible. So Matthew 24 and John 14. Matthew 24, John 14. Have you got it? John 14, Jesus says this. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now watch verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Has the Lord received us just yet? No, He hasn't. Will He receive us? Yes, completely and fully. The body and the soul, all together in that glorified state that we'll be in one day. And here there was a promise from the Lord. Now, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation this morning? You might say yes. How many would say I have? Amen. Slip up your hand. Okay. You've believed in Him for salvation. Then He says... If I go, I'll come and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We can also trust that through his witness that he will return and receive us again. Matthew chapter 24 in verse 30 says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great 
glory. Verse 44, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. So all throughout the Bible, we find all these witnesses of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find that in the Old Testament, Zechariah, as we mentioned, we see uh, in the book of Job, we see Jeremiah, we could look in Isaiah, we could go all throughout the prophets, and there was often a mention of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture. Then we move to the New Testament, and it's the same thing again. They say, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. It's going to be here before you know it. It's a reality. It's not if, it's when He comes. But did you know history also gives witness and bears witness to the Lord? For instance, uh, some people have uh, put out the argument that Jesus was made up, that He was a legend. He didn't actually exist in history. And therefore, because He never existed in history, we don't have to necessarily consider the rest of the truth of Scripture to be real. The coming of Christ, it's all make-believe. It's all just, it could be a spiritual thing. It was a good idea, but it's not literally going to happen. Well, here's what I'd put before you. I'll start with Scripture. Luke chapter 2 is often read as the Christmas story about the Lord Jesus. In the beginning of Luke chapter 2, it says that Caesar Augustus taxed the whole world. Here's what we know outside of the Bible from historical documents. Augustus took his place of leadership in the Roman Empire in 27 B.C. We know from the writings of Augustus that he said one of the things he wanted to do for the empire is to set things in order. By the first century A.D., there are documents of the taxings or the censuses that the Roman Empire would take. And here's how they did them. They did them every 14 years. There are three to four documents that show us that in increments of 14, they were taking a census, a taxing. Therefore, we can assume that Augustus, because he was the one who wanted to set things in order, would have been the first one to start the taxing. And here's what he would have done. There would have been either one or two that would have taken place. He could have done one a few years after his reign, and then a second one, in Jesus' day when he was born, or the one that took place in Jesus' day was actually the first great taxing that the Roman Empire put on the world as they knew it in that day. So that is historical evidence of Luke writing down something that was happening and then recording the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some other things that come up outside of Scripture. Again, in the second century, early on, there was a, a Jewish historian named Josephus who you can go and read his books right now. We have his books in our library. And he has writings where he writes about Christus, or Christ as we would know him, and his followers. And back then, the Jewish historians and the Roman historians always had reason to, to search out whether or not something they were recording was true. And they would recognize something as legend, or they would re recognize it as fact. And here's what they never did. They never wrote that Christianity was made up. They never wrote that the Christians had made up their, their, um, their God, Christ. It was actually the opposite of that. They often wrote that the Christians would sing to this one Christ almost like he's a God. And then later on, even in, um, in modern day, we have some religious professors that have done their study, and I didn't do all this, but here's what they write. One guy wrote this. He wrote, based on the historians of the past, he wrote, Jesus was known by historians who had reason to look into the matter, but no one ever thought he was a, make, 
he was made up. They all recognized him as being a real person. So now if we could say Jesus is real and he's not made up based on even records outside of Scripture, well, now we have not only the Scriptures bearing witness of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we could also say that history bears record. And the reason why history bears record is because of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Christ came, Christ fulfilled prophecies that had taken place hundreds and hundreds of years prior to Him existing on this earth as we know it. And so therefore, if He's able to fulfill all of those many hundreds of prophecies mentioned in the Old Testament, when He came to the earth 2,000 years ago, mark it down that He's coming again, and it's going to be in the very near future. So we have two great witnesses, the Scriptures and the witness of history. So back to our text, note how it says again, the Lord says, when he cometh. I hope you understand this morning that it's not a matter of if, it's when. It's a matter of what time. Could it be in the next second? Could it be in the next hour? Could it be in the next week, the next month, the next year? It Could it be in the next hundred years? We have no clue, but it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. As we move into the next part, of our passage, go back to Mark chapter 8 with me. We have a second detail here about this great second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this, When He cometh in the glory of His Father. This event will be a great glorified event. The first coming of Christ was very humble. He was lowly. He was meek. He was a babe in a manger. He came in love. He came in mercy. He came bringing grace. Yes, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes, He came to save sinners like you and me. Not to save the righteous, but to save the sinner. Yes, He came in a very lowly and humble state. He had no place to lay His head. He came as a servant to mankind. He came as a sacrifice for sinners. He came as a Savior to all those who will believe. That's how He came the first time. But the second coming will be far more than that. Christ comes, as we see in the passage here, in the glory of His Father. Christ comes in the full majesty of God the Father. In His first coming, He concealed His glory, but in His second coming, all the world will behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will be eternally adored. You know, in history, one of the most televised events were the attacks of 9-11. Some of y'all, I think most of us are, some of y'all are so young you probably don't even remember it, or you may not even, even have existed at that time. But many of us remember where we were and what was going on on that day. And I remember I was in college the first time. I was in graphic design school. And I remember that day very vividly. But back then, what we didn't have is we didn't have these things. Everybody had to leave the school Go home, sit in front of the television, and watch the event. Now, you know, when that took place, when those four planes, one hitting the North Tower of uh, the trade centers there, the one in uh, Washington, D.C., the one in New York, the one in Pennsylvania, as those, floor, those planes were crashing and, and doing the devastation that they did, I found that as I watched, I remember leaving the school and everybody was in a panic. The school shut down, no classes Businesses were closing down. Parents were coming home. Uh, restaurants were shutting down. 
left and right, all these people flooding back to their homes because everybody wanted to get home. What in the world is happening? And then families, if you had a family, if you were uh, around that uh, time, I was out on my own at that time. But they were huddling around each other, getting around that television, and they were just watching with this great anticipation, what is going on? You know, during that time, there was about 2 billion people that sat in front of their televisions and watched the events of 9-11. Right now, we have 7.5 or so billion people in the world, roughly. At that time, there was 2 billion people sitting before their televisions. The difference in the, the glorification, I'll say, okay, of 9-11 and the Lord Jesus is that when the second coming of the Lord Jesus happens, the entire world will behold His glory. Could you imagine an event like that? I believe another large televised event was the death of Princess Diana. That was another big one. It was up in the couple billions. There were certain games along the way, certain um, Olympic games that were up in the high billions. But could you imagine an event that takes and captures the attention of every, every living, breathing soul on the face of the earth at that day? That's what the second coming will be. It'll be a glorified event. And I want to stretch your mind for a second here. Back in 2001, though I would have said we're still right there, it's at hand. But you know, at that time, it would have been hard for all of us to witness the event of the Lord Jesus descending down to earth with His angels, happening over in Jerusalem, and here we are on the other side of the world. But how much closer are we today? When you take that device out of your pocket, and within a split second, you can have a video there, and you can see anything going on around the entire world. That's how much closer we are today. So we got two details of this second coming. We got the first one, which is that it is a guaranteed event based on Scripture, based on history, based on the witnesses that we see all throughout the, the existence of mankind and the history of mankind. We have the witness that the Lord will come. Then we have another detail about it. It's a glorified event. No one will escape the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning we will all be participants in one form or another when the Lord returns, especially on that great day of the Lord. Now, the third part here, the third detail I want to show you in Mark chapter uh, 8, verse 38, and this is the last part, and I hope I have enough time to go through all this with you, is the fact that he says, with the holy angels. It's a gathering event. It's a gathering event. Here's the thing, and I'll get to the gathering event here in a second. The thing we have to remember about the second coming, the second coming it has two phases to it. The first phase is the rapturing of the church. The second phase is the day of the Lord. Again, I'll say it one more time. The second coming has two phases to it. The first is the rapturing of the church. The second is the day of the Lord. The rapturing of the church includes all those in Christ who will be called up to meet the Lord in the air. If you will, turn to 1 Thessalonians with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. Look in verse 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16.
For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The rapture of the church is something that is imminent. It has no it has nothing on God's prophetic calendar that necessarily has to take place for the rapture to take place. Now, there are signs that are showing us that we are getting closer and closer to that event because those signs are there to show us that we are getting closer and closer to a seven-year tribulation and then the official day of the Lord. But the rapture of the church has no time to it. It is an imminent event. It could happen any second. Now, do you notice what Paul says there at the end of that chapter? He says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Does the rapture scare you this morning? Whether or not it actually would happen, or maybe you don't believe that the rapture will take place for whatever reason. Paul says to the believer, he says, comfort yourselves with these words, that the rapture will take place, that you will be called up to meet the Lord in the air, and will be forever with Him. But the only reason that the rapture should scare any of us is if we do not know Christ as our personal Savior this morning. Because if the rapture were to happen in the next second, you would be left behind and the church would be the ones going up. And that's why your salvation is so important today because today is the day of salvation as the scriptures talk about. This is the day we've been given. This is the moment we've been given. This is your chance to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one knows what the next second holds, whether it'll be the rapturing of the church or whether it might be some other tragedy in your life where your soul leaves this world and goes into eternity. The rapture of the church comforts the believer, but it should scare the lost person who doesn't know Christ as their personal Savior. Now, the other phase of the second coming is the day of the Lord. We read about it in Zechariah 14 when he said, In the day of the Lord... He'll come down. He'll land on that Mount of Olives. He'll split it in two. That's the day of the Lord. That's what concludes the seven-year tribulation period is the day of the Lord. See, the rapturing is a benefit to the church because the rapturing delivers the bride of Christ, which is the church, out of this world before God's wrath is poured out on this world. That's why in the book of Thessalonians we would read that we are, we, are, uh, we are delivered from wrath, which is to come. That's the wrath of that seven-year tribulation period. So this second part, for this second part, I want to take you to 2 Thessalonians. We're already in 1 Thessalonians. Just turn over one book, and I want to take you through chapter 2. Now, this is the bulk of the message, and I've got 10 minutes with you. I think we can do it, and I believe it's going to be a help to you. The second phase of the second coming is the day of the Lord. I'm going to prove this to you right now in our text. If you'll pick up in verse 1, I'm going to show you the, the main event and the two phases to the main event. Verse 1. Now, we, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord. Remember, the second coming is the main event. By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. There's the rapture. That's one phase of the main event that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. There's the second phase to the main event. So the main event is the second coming. It includes two things, the rapturing and the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not 
It's, not, it's nothing like the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, He came, as I said, meek and lowly, and He was humbled in the state He was in. He was a mere man who came to be a Savior and to take away the sins of the world. But when He comes in the day of the Lord, He'll come in the full glory of His Father. He'll come with the holy angels, the armies of heaven coming with Him. Revelation chapter 9, as He descends down from heaven, and he's, he's riding upon a white horse. He doesn't come on a donkey as he did back in the Gospels when he entered into Jerusalem in a manner of peace. That's what the donkey symbolizes. No, he comes on a white horse because he is ready to conquer the world and to set it in order and to take back what is his. That's the day of the Lord. As far as the day of the Lord goes, we find in the book of Thessalonians things that precede it, things that happen within it, and warnings that, Paul gives us in this chapter here. If you will, pick up in verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Two things we see in verse 3 that will happen preceding the day of the Lord. The first one, there's going to be those who are deceived. You notice how Paul said there, let no man deceive you by any means. Let no man deceive you. There are deceivers now. There are groups right now. You go to social media. You can listen and you can learn. Um, I know people watch it on TikTok. They watch it on YouTube. Be careful about the poison that you put in your mind from all of these wolves in sheep's clothing out here because there are many who have spiritualized the second coming of Christ so much that it's not even going to happen. It's sort of just happening in our hearts. It's just an idea, but it's not a literal event. Paul says there's going to be those who are deceived. And we live in a day and age where many are already deceived, whether they have bought into the false doctrine or they have just forgotten about what the Scriptures said and they're no longer looking up any longer. All they're doing is they're looking down. They're looking down. They're here. They're on themselves. They're on their relationships. They're on their finances. They're on their children. They're on their careers. They're on this. Their emotions, their anxieties and fears and this. and Everything's down. Everything's inward. Hey, we're told in Scripture that we should set our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep looking up. Stop looking down because Paul says many are going to be deceived. But then there's also the deserters that come along with the deception. He talks about here, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. A falling away from what? From truth. What types of truth? It's not, it's not explicit. It's not spelled out. We know it would be the truth of God's Word. We've seen many who have turned away from the truth of God's Word. But how about the truth of nature? How about the, the things we witness around us right now? Men trying to be women and women trying to be men and people stepping outside of the boundaries of what is natural. People are deserting. They're turning away from truth. There's a falling away happening right in front of our faces. And it is being glorified on, on every television show, on every, on every movie. It's being glorified all across the Internet. It's glorified. And it's no longer an odd thing, an unusual thing, a wicked thing, a sinful thing. Now it has new labels to it so that it is approved by mankind. But in heaven, God says it's not right. It is wrong. It is sin. 
and the day of the Lord is on its way, and they'll be judged. And it's not good for us to sit here and not say anything and let these people go on their way to hell believing a lie because many have been deceived and many have deserted the truth and they've turned their backs. And we live in that day and age now. Signs of the times that show us that the second coming is right out in front of us. Look back at Thessalonians with me again. Pick up again. We go on. We're speaking about now the son of perdition. This would be in the middle part of the tribulation. Really, it would precede that, but the middle part's where he, uh, he really uh, shows himself to be one who should be worshipped, the Antichrist as we would call him. But in the beginning of the tribulation period, we know that the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, and they're allowed to worship there where the Dome of the Rock is. And right now there's a Muslim mosque there taking that place. But soon there will come a time where the Antichrist will sign a peace treaty with Israel, and then they'll be allowed to worship again for three and a half years. But at the three and a half year mark, he will break the treaty, and he will erect an idol of himself that the abomination of desolation will will be erected in that temple there in Jerusalem. Prior to that, before the seven-year tribulation period, we know that the Antichrist will rise up. And we know in the, in, the, in the little letters that John writes, 1 John, he speaks about there are many Antichrists. Every age has had an Antichrist that could rise up if the devil had liberty in him to rise him up and all things converge together and God's will were done in that way. And our age is no different. Now you go to verse 4, "...who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God." or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Now verses 6 and 7 show us another part here. He says, and now ye know that, or I'm sorry, and now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Verses 6 and 7 speaks about a restrainer. There's someone today who is holding back the power of Satan to energize this man called the Antichrist. There's someone in the world who is holding back the, the extreme, ex, most extreme form of wickedness that man is capable of, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the restrainer right now. And the Holy Spirit, let me tell you something, the Holy Spirit is not in the building right here. He's not contained in this as if it's some shrine made to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's even, He's not sitting in Jerusalem where the Dome of the Rock is, waiting that the the mosque would be removed and then the temple would be rebuilt and then the Spirit could have liberty again. No, He's not there. He's He's not even down inside the Bible that we hold so near and dear and we don't like to lay anything on top of it or not write in it some people or not spill anything on it. The Holy Spirit is in us. He's in the believer. And right now, as long as you and I remain in this world, through us, through our lives, through our testimony, the Holy Spirit is restraining the power of Satan. And that's why we still enjoy the grace of God and the mercy of God right now in this world. Lost people can't understand that truth. And they won't ever understand it until the Father draws them to the Son. But a believer should understand that inside of them is the witness of God in the world, the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and they are the temple of the Almighty God long enough to restrain wickedness in this world. But there's coming a day where he who letteth will let, 
That word leadeth is defined as restrain. It means the restrainer will no longer be there to restrain. You know when that day is? The first phase of the second coming, the rapture of the church. When all believers are removed, the Holy Spirit, though He is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, all those things, but His actual active witness through the lives of human beings will no longer be present, and He will be removed, and that's when the power of Satan will energize the Antichrist, and then that's when the Antichrist will start to rise up his armies, and the world will be headed towards the day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment for many. Go back to the book of Thessalonians with me again. Look in verse 8. It says it right here. And then shall that wicked be revealed, and then that wicked. Who's the wicked one? It's the Antichrist. He'll be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, Satan will energize the Antichrist and make it seem as though he is the Messiah, but he's not. There will be a lot of demonic influence taking place, and here's what it will lead to during those seven years. Verses 10 and 11, there will be strong delusion. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You know what you get today? You know what the offer is today? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll receive everlasting life. That's your offer today. That is God's offer to mankind today. It's the gift of grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. He offers salvation today. He offers everlasting life today. But those who receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, verse 11, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Don't play around with God. Don't mess around with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God is not obligated to, sit, to save a single soul. Did you know that? Because when we were brought into the world, we had an age of accountability. Where during that time we were in ignorance of sin. But because of our wicked and vile hearts and the nature that's in us, the blood of Adam that courses through our veins, we get to a point where we finally choose to sin and trespass against the Almighty. And God offers salvation to any who will believe, but those who reject the truth when the Holy Spirit has convicted their heart, well, they have to be on guard because what the Scriptures say in Thessalonians is that when this day comes, those individuals will be given over to strong delusion and they will believe a lie. And look at verse 12, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. From delusion to damnation, and forever separated from God. Now you might say, man, Tim, that's a, I'll tell you what, that's a heavy message for a Sunday morning. I'm used to these other ones. Maybe you think I'm always heavy. I don't know. But for the believer this morning, that's why Paul said, what did he say? He said, comfort yourselves with these words. In 1 Thessalonians, he said, comfort yourself with these words that the rapturing of the church will deliver the church from the wrath which is to come. That Christ will not let His perish and go through all that, that, that judgment that's going to be poured out on the earth, but that He will deliver us out from this world and we will be forever with the Lord. And that's the promise of Scripture. But the book of Thessalonians gives great warning to those who have not yet received that promise. 
But to the believer, we move into verse 13, if you're still in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 13. He says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. If the Spirit of God's not in you, then you are not God's, and you will be left here whenever the rapture takes place. It's the Spirit of God that seals us until the day of redemption. He is our dowry. He is our down payment. He is that thing that seals us until the Lord shouts from heaven and calls us all home. It goes on, Whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. This is the charge for the believer this morning. He says, Therefore, now, anytime you see a therefore, you should ask, what's the there, therefore? In this case, he's speaking to the believer now. He's given warn, warning to the lost person, warning that you need to receive the truth. And now here's what he says, verse 15. He says, therefore, brethren. I don't know about you all, but I love the fact that I'm part of the brethren. Because the promise that he's about to say, or the words he's about to say here we can take them to heart because of the promises of Scripture. If you're a part of the family of God this morning and you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, then that's why you can encourage yourself by what he's about to say. Here's what he says. He says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions which have been taught, whether by word or by epistle, or I'm sorry, or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ... Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. You know what he says? Simply put, stand fast and hold to the word of God. Don't, don't be overcome by all that's going on in the world. Mankind will forever change his ways. That's the problem with mankind. And this generation may be focused on something that I acknowledged earlier, but the next generation might turn from that and go another direction. And the next generation might do something totally different that we've never even imagined. Mankind's always going to change his ways. So where can we find solid ground on the Lord Jesus Christ? Stand fast and hold fast to the Word of God. Be dedicated. Be dedicated to the Word of God. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Again, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It reminds us of the second coming. In Matthew chapter 24, we read, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And when the Son of Man shall gather in his glory before him, shall, before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, inherit the kingdom. But then shall he say to them on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 41. The gathering, I said earlier, it, it affects all of us in one form or another. The gathering of the second coming begins with the rapturing of the church. But in the day of the Lord, the Lord will take all those who have rejected the truth of the gospel and they will be, they will be the ones on His left hand. 
And he will cast every one of them into everlasting fire, according to his own words, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 25. But all those on his right hand, he says, inherit the kingdom. Now, I could go into further detail about dispensations within those verses, and if you care to talk about that, ask me after the service. But know this, there's a great gathering. Those who will spend an eternity separated from, the, from, hell, uh, from God in hell, and then those who will spend their eternity with God in heaven. So simply put, how shall we escape such wrath if we neglect so great a salvation that God has offered to each one of us? There was a story about a farmer who had an old hound dog that he cherished. And one day his dog disappeared and several weeks passed without his return. And in spite of this, the farmer just continued to set fresh food out for his dog each and every day. Well, finally, as time went on, his neighbor came to him just out of curiosity. And he asked him, why do you continue to set food out for the dog when he obviously was not coming back? He'll be back, replied the farmer. He'll be back because he knows I'm waiting on him. And when he comes back, I want him to know that he is welcomed back. You know, the Lord Jesus will come back because he knows we're waiting on him. The question is, what am I doing with my life now? If I believe he's on his way and he's left me here with a purpose to serve him, what am I doing with my life now? Many of us have a great expectancy of the coming of the Lord. We're looking forward to it. Many of us, maybe, maybe you live your life every day looking up to that sky every single day when you wake up in the morning, hoping for the Lord to return today. Maybe you're like John and you say, even so come Lord Jesus, I just can't handle it anymore. And the Lord's going to return when He cometh. But what exactly are you doing with your life now? Are you making preparations? You know, we'd make preparations if we knew a loved one was coming. Well, the greatest love we've ever known is the love of God. How much more preparation should we make knowing that Jesus is on His way? And one day we'll see Him face to face. And are, are you ready for that? Saved person, are you ready for that? Maybe today something needs to be confessed, made right with the Lord. Hey, lost person, are you ready for that? Are you ready if the Lord, if that trumpet sounded right now and that was it? Are you ready? As we close with a word of prayer this morning, heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, I pray that you'd have your way in our hearts right now as we take the time, Lord, to make decisions here at the end of the service. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would guide us now. Help us.